You're listening to Were You Still Talking? They pump out your blood and they pump in a, a new batch of blood and all of it is the blood of children. All the big stars are going to be on TV now. I mean, it's just the way it's going. Your role, I think, will be played by Brad Pitt. What'd you wear? Uh, I wore my loincloth wrapped around my feet. Are you going by John today? And that's absolutely true. You feel it in every cell in your body. Yeah, you can, you can bend the truth and bend the visualizations no matter what your political affiliation. You could have an alpaca. My a, a girlfriend's daughter recently got married and they had llamas or alpacas at the wedding. A recording room. They recorded uh, a couple songs in the kitchen of Rumbo. So, wait, you, you, you microdosed before this, right? What? Hey, welcome back. This is Joel Albrecht, and you are listening to... Were you still talking? Today on the podcast, I have a very special guest, and I'm going to do a different kind of introduction, because normally, I try and introduce the person... Persian, the person going by their resume or whatever, and I kind of mess it up, but my guest today knows himself much better than I do and has a um, um, a more traditional way to introduce, and so I'm going to just turn it over to him. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you, and uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to sit in this space and, and have that little... Uh, kind of, uh, how do we navigate this? Uh, you know, doing podcasts, I've been on a few, and it seems to be very uh, common for people to go through, hey, this guy wants to introduce himself in a certain specific way. So uh, I'll introduce myself in the traditional language as best as I can, and then also in the contemporary. So dogate, Andrew Ecker Yenishe, Donna Enishinigi E Inde Enishe, Irish Bashachin. Inde Dashache, German Dashanali, a Kote Go E Tashli, a Portland Oregon Inasha, Shema E Kathy Lindsay Woye, Shiza E Dale Ecker Wole. So I am Andrew Ecker, my mother Kathy Lindsay, my father Dale Ecker, my mother's mother Elva Gallegos, Apache woman from New Mexico, my father's mother Evelyn Beatty, Irish woman from Pennsylvania, my mother's father Leroy Lindsay, Apache man from Arkansas, and my father's father Wayne Ecker. German Algonquin from Pennsylvania. I have a daughter, Bailey, a son, Peyton. Beautiful, beloved fiance, Monica. I was incarnated into this body in the land of the Multnomah under beautiful Mount Hood next to the Willamette River in Portland, Oregon. Although I reside here in the land of the Akmal Atom, the Peeposh, the Maricopa Inde people, in Phoenix, Arizona, the vast valley of the sun. And I'm grateful to be here with you, Joel. And uh, unpack this conversation that we had one of those pre-conversations uh, that you wish you hit the record button on because it was just such a, a great experience connecting with you and learning more about your podcast and also uh, some uh, about your life. And we have so much in common with music and yeah, it's just great to connect. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to mention that. Um, I never do pre-interviews based on some other far more famous podcasters and now i see what they mean because we did we had such a great conversation and i was just like yeah this is why i don't do pre-interviews because but it is the <laughs> it's another good conversation today i find it i think it's really incredible that we have that we were born under the same mountain i was literally born in hood river hospital uh 
part the part of it that's not really used anymore, but uh, right under the mountain. I lived in Parkdale at the time, so it, it's pretty cool to find that where we're from. The we were incarnated here in basically the same place. Yeah, and there's something to that. You know, the idea, I mean, as far back as we can remember, right? We got Jesus of Nazareth, you know, that that whole statement of self-identity or identity being uh, a part of the place that you were born or the place that you're from. And yet in the contemporary culture, it's usually, you know, hi, my name is Andrew. I'm an author. I'm a keynote speaker. I'm a coach. You know, all of these ideas. And it feels so... I guess, humbling to remind myself of that I'm a child of people and mm -hmm. I'm also a child mm -hmm. of this planet. And uh, that connection to the Northwest is definitely something that means something to me. Uh, my family was New Mexico transplants to uh, Portland and Portland's been a, such a beautiful place for me. I wasn't born uh, directly at the base of Mount Hood, but I definitely remember you know, looking out and seeing both Mount Hood and Mount St. Helens. And, uh, of course, you know, I think both of us are old enough to say we were there when uh, the the mountain blew up and what that was like. I don't know if you remember the snowfall of ashes that came down, and that was such an experience, uh, such a beautiful thing to witness in a certain sense, but yet such a devastating uh, experience as well. But how many people get to say that they were – you know, they had ash rain down on them from one of the largest mountains in the Pacific Northwest. That's pretty cool. That's really, yeah, that was really, that was an experience. And I, uh, you know, I thought it was incredible at the time. I remember thinking how amazing it was. And, but then I walked out and went, oh no, there's ash on my car. But <laughs> <laughs> like, like that really matters. It didn't matter. It wasn't until years later that I found out how devastating it was. It, it was actually not not till about 10 years ago, National Geographic did a story on it, and I think they did a, a, a newer video on it. I had no idea how much of the mountain it took, how quickly that happened. It was one of the most destructive volcano eruptions in, in the U.S. in recorded history that we know of. It was just, it was amazing. Um, amazing. That was, yeah, that was some power. And one of my favorite places, the Hawaii Islands, uh, I like to go to the big island where um, the volcano is, is, is kind of the goddess of the island. Um, and that's, yeah, so I'm really connect to volcanoes somehow. Yeah, they say that um, in the, the Maori tradition that that idea of your mountain and your river, uh, this is something synonymous with the way that you introduce yourself. Um, the Maori people of, of New Zealand. And I, I think about how in many uh, Native American cultures that the idea of where you're from was associated with your clan even, and even sometimes the food you ate, uh, your ancestors ate. This is what created clan identity. Uh, and we've gone so far, we've distanced ourselves from these ideas, these simplistic, pragmatic approaches to fortifying the space of self-identity so our children are left with this caution of you know what are you going to be when you grow up right. and right you know and that void right that perpetuates so many of our behaviors uh some of us drive ourselves into you know getting a doctorate or getting a you know a master's degree or or whatever it may be to fill that 
space inside of us. Others go into sports and music and artistic uh, kinds of endeavors. And, and yet we really, you know, struggle to answer that simple question that so many indigenous communities around the world answer from jump from the very, you know, first part of, of raising a child. It's to give them that, that space to introduce themselves as a grandchild, as a, a child, as a person from the earth, as an earthling. And that's been my message uh, to take that concept and hopefully, you know, bridge the kind of the gap in, uh, I feel, this contemporary culture. Because I didn't really grow up with any of this knowledge. You know, I had to come into it at a later age. And for me, it's been so transformative and has given me such a place of peace in my life. And the hope is, is that one day I'm sitting around the campfire in places that my family calls sacred and mm-hmm. I get to hear I get to hear my granddaughter or my grandson introduce themselves as me and reestablishing that idea and and celebration of interconnectedness in our family. It it just is a, a, a vision to hold uh, a value and a uh, really a a level of abundance uh, for for my family. My gr- my grandmother she never witnessed that. You know, my mom never witnessed that in me. I wasn't able to introduce myself as my grandmother around the sacred fire. Uh, she didn't have that privilege. We, uh, my family goes back to the Madera River Valley of Texas, you know, the Madera mm-hmm. Valley there. And, uh, you know, Fort Davis, this area, this is a, uh, a fort like so many uh, forts around the United States, specifically in the West, that were, you know, we, we drive by these forts and we think, great, there's a, you know, there's a historical place, you know, it's even on the map, you know, as you're driving down the I, whatever, you know, this historical landmark, or what, whatever the name may be. And we've gone so far as to disassociate ourselves from the reason why those forts were built. You know, those forts were built to, subdue people to uh, to kill people um you know they were used in the american indian war which is the longest lasting war in american history regardless of what you know uh nbc cbs abc say when they tell you that uh, afghanistan the longest lasting american war this narrative in our contemporary culture we really have i'm i try to absence myself from the we statement uh this is what government, you know, has yet to do is to really acknowledge a lot what has gone on in uh, our Native people. You know, uh, myself, right, I've seen in my short life, uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't say short, I'm 45 now, but I've seen, you know, LGBTQ people uh, short. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen LGBTQ, you know, people um be seen by the united states government you know uh they're now recognized you know yeah, they that's get such to- a yeah it's such a nutty concept um my wife and i they kept harping on this new story about how many people this latest um disease killed and i don't want to underplay the tragedy in any way but they were comparing it to World War One, World War Two, and the and the Vietnam War. How many people were killed? And we kind we thought the the um, 
we thought the information was wrong. We're like, wait a minute, more people died in World War II than, than, than this. Um, so we went and looked at the numbers and she ended up on the, um, the site for, uh, now I forgot who it is, but it's basically the, um, the military site to say how many soldiers were killed in each, each war. And it goes all the way back to the Revolutionary War. It goes all the way back to the Revolutionary War. How many soldiers were killed in battle? So for the Indian Wars, they call it, it was a little over a thousand soldiers. They totally dis. First of all, they counted a war. They call it a war, not a genocide. And of course, they only ac account for the soldiers that were enlisted in the American army. Those were the only people that counted, not the millions of people that were wiped out on both sides, civilian people, but mainly on the Native American side. Not counted at all. Not counted at all. And as far as I know, those those are also American. It's just it's it's mind-boggling how history is presented. You know that's kind of what I was getting at. That our tradition of presenting history is it's bizarre. <laughs> it is it's, extremely it's bizarre. bizarre, and you know it it definitely goes to uh, I guess the the winner writes the writes the discord right. That's right. what what people yeah. say. Whoever wins the war writes the the history. Whoever's the enemy becomes the terrorist. Whoever is the victor becomes, you know, the liberated general. And I feel like we have a moment here in history where we can begin to unpack some conversation. Uh, it seems like we're having a lot of transformation go on. I mean, Deb Holland is is uh, regardless of where you're at in the political world. That is a huge transformation uh, that we've witnessed. This is the uh, nominee for the Interior Secretary. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, yes. the Interior Secretary, right, has been the actual uh, place in government that was responsible for the kill, you know, kill the Indian, save the man, which mm -hmm. was a, a policy of the United States government. So for Deb Holland who is a Native American woman, to hold that office. Uh, many of our people have just shed tears over this. This is like prophecy. This is like something to celebrate. And I feel that all people can be invited to celebrate in that, that we come to this place of reckoning uh, in, in a certain step forward. Uh, I hope for a day when I can be out in the forest with and can look at a sign that, it, you know, the idea was and were is absent. Uh, I go to Umqua, you know, quite often, and there's a sign that that is right by one of the waterfalls. And for those of you that don't know, Umqua is this beautiful uh, national forest in uh, central Oregon. Just amazing waterfall after waterfall and uh, rivers and creeks and gorgeous place. Well, there's a sign there in one of these very beautiful sites, and it says Voices of the Past. And it goes into saying the Athabascan language was spoke here. So I have a video on my YouTube channel of me sharing my ceremonial introduction to the sign. You know, oh, that's and great. in this point of defiance, right, to say mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm still here. You know, we are still here. Like, why is this like uh, this kind of penciling genocide? You know, and what happens to children and what happens to 
you know, even myself, it's like uh, just the lack of acknowledgement. These are simple little things that can be corrected in, you know, uh, the way we look at indigenous people. And they're all over the United States. It's uh, instead of articulating the idea that this is an ancestral place, there are ancestral people that are now doctors and lawyers and professional athletes and musicians and artists and authors and, you know, all of the contribution that uh, indigenous people have given to this country. It's like, this is the ancestral land of all these great people and use it as an opportunity to educate. Instead, there's this Neanderthal looking depiction of kind of a stick figure man that, you know, no native drew because I do tip shading. We know how to do depth artwork. And, you know, it, it's like it's got the you know, typical breach on and it's like it looks like one of the series in the Darwin thing, the ape to man. And uh, yeah, it's just it's really I mean, I have, but there's also part of me that wants to cry. Right. Right. Yeah. It's it's such a strange. Uh, a strange world in that, because. Americans want to teach their, uh, a lot of people want to teach everyone to be American, which isn't really a real thing. And if you're American, then you can hate on all these other groups. You know, you can, you, you can decide that all these other groups are non-American, which is ridiculous because there's no, really no such thing as an American. But, uh, you know, there's been a rise in violence against Asians uh, because of, what happened the last four years, the previous four years, and, and calling something the Asian flu and all this stuff. And, oh, they, you know, they attack Asians as if they're from the same place. You know, the half of the world is Asian population. It just is nuts. And, you know, it almost makes me feel like, well, maybe as people had a real understanding of their background, a real understanding of their family it would, it would, they would feel more, they would feel like they had more of a place in the world and wouldn't have to be looking for it in uh, sports shirts and things like that. <laughs> yeah, I feel you know? that so much. And, you know, getting back to this idea of self identity and, you know, the acknowledgement of who we are as people, as, as children, as grandchildren, uh, there's something that's so powerful in sitting in that space. And regardless of the way a person looks, regardless of what vehicle their body is in, they have a connection to this earth. They're, they're earthlings. You know, only really when Mother Earth know if you're indigenous. You know, right. I, that's right. the way, you know, that's the way that I look at it. Because you're, you are connected genetically to this planet. There's no other starship that we know of that's going to go through the universe the way that this starship does. And we might spend billions of dollars trying to create one, but have one right here that's traveling through, you know, distant galaxies. And it's just beautiful to reconnect to that idea and fortify the space of that. And in that, right, we give an inheritance of abundance and the natural journey of life to our children to be able to teach them this idea of mm -hmm. self-identity. And where did we go wrong with this? Like, when did we start believing these other forms of self? And I think for me, right, if we look at the idea of when the smith and the person came in, when the knight came in, uh, when the farmer, the sower, 
all these identities that were synonymous with work and synonymous with behavior. And this became a, a practical idea of self. So, you know, potentially this was during the time of the landlords, the original landlords. These were the people in Europe that they were the only ones that could have a right to self-identity associated with space or a, a region of Europe. I have a friend named Didlake, and he can actually take you to place in Europe that's where Didl is, where there's an, an actual lake. And this is where his ancestors originated from. But they were landlords. They owned land in Europe. So they were able to have that idea of self-identity being synonymous with the earth. The other people that were a part of that region that were under that landlord's ownership in a certain sense, they were given names that were synonymous with their work. And that's why you have the smith and the parson and the knight and all these different ideas of self-identity that were handed down over and over again to generations until that became our value, right? That became like who we are. So the conversation and the invite is to be yourself as, you know, connected to the, and what does that mean to be in relationship to this beautiful planet? You know, to remind yourself of the air, the water, the fire, the earth, to have for the beauty of of this planet as it is um, without the idea of the value of the mountain being the resort you know the value of the mountain being the hotel that's built on the mountain but to look at the mountain and to see just in its innate space just in the beauty that it is when that happens then we begin to understand each other in a different way we begin to see each other as valuable. We begin to see that beauty, all living beings. This is the, the power of this idea of all my relations. You know, that I am related to the tree. I am related to the mountain. I'm related to, you know, the eagle, the bird, the dolphin. And it's just the way that the basic elements of life are arranged that make us different. It's just the way that the air, the fire, and the earth are arranged. It's the arrangement that makes us different, but we're all from the same source. You know, we all have Holy Spirit inside of us that gives us the ability to connect to creation, to creator, to the universe, to consciousness. Jesus, you know, I, I really, um, you know, I was a pastor for three years. I kind of came at play realizing that that community really, um, I had done what I needed to do in the community, and I was going through a divorce, and I was feeling the separation in the church and all these different things, and that was really when I started going back into learning more about uh, my ancestral connection to spirituality. Now, it wasn't until years later that I actually got to go and in ceremony. You know, we have an idea like Native American spirituality, which is a very broad term. And then we have individual tribal ceremonies. And these tribal ceremonies are very specific and very, um, I guess, uh, strict in a certain sense. You know, there's guidelines, there's principles, there's a program in place. And for those of us that have grown up with an identity or a story in our family of being Native American, it's very challenging to kind of jump right into the deep waters of that experience without kind of getting our feet wet in something that's a little bit more pain. 
So maybe go oh wow. So we start going to Sweat Lodge and we start really learning the customs of the broader sense of what it means to be Native American. And that was my journey. Uh, you know, and it was the drum that actually brought me to that first feeling comfortable in the idea of what it meant to be Native. Uh, my family, because of our, our, you know, our ties to Texas and specifically to the Apaches of Texas, it's a very challenging space to be. In fact, grandmother on her birth certificate, her parents were, were labeled as Mexican. And it oh, also wow. says, yeah, it says born in Balmer, Texas, but they were, were called Mexican. And if you look at the history, and this is in, you know, the 1800s when this mm -hmm. happened, uh, late 1800s, when you look at, well, what was going on, right? There's this, this hermeneutics where we, you know, not only the individual, but also the, the context of what the individual was going through. So you have the terrain this putative group of basically assassins that were running people off land that were killing indigenous and uh, trying to get their hand. I mean, this, this is blatant. Uh, the Texas Rangers were responsible in some ways for the occupation of the committees. Really held Texas and a lot of planes for a lot of years. And that goes back, you know, historically to a lot of the relationship in the French and the Spanish and also the English. I mean, right Texas, right? You have in that region, there's Louisiana is colonized by uh, the French. So you have the French reaching out to arm natives and they were given goods and services and, and been to indigenous groups. And because of that relationship, you have the ability to kind of stand in opposition to the Spanish. And the Spanish really struggled to keep Texas. And then when the Mexicans and the Mexicans struggled to keep Texas so badly that they said to the United, hey, come to Texas and we'll give you free land. Well, this is also during the Civil War, right? This is at the end of the Civil War. Who went to Texas? All, you know, the Confederates. And that was what was really worth the Texas Rangers. I mean, these were hardened warriors that had been war, that had seen the ravages of the Civil War. And now their new enemy was the people of Texas. So when my grandmother was putting, you know, the name Mexican on her birth certificate, she put that name on the way of surviving. And, and it was, we're Apache. You know, we're Apache, but we're show ourselves as this group of people that hopefully is going to be targeted as much, you know, because obviously we can't pass for being white, but we can we can assimilate into the place of being Mexican and hopefully survive genocide of the indigenous people of that region. Some of the people were brought into uh, the concentration camps, the war camps in Oklahoma, and also in Mexico, some of the Inde Apache people. And us, you know, many of our ancestors stayed in and kind of came uh, a idea of being Mexican. And then, so this word Mexican is the root of Spain, which is mestizo. And the way that the land grants were given to people is you could be mixed, which mestizo means mixed. 
it's a it's a way of identifying a person by colonial race. Uh, you know, another form of uh, okay, well, they're close in being Spanish that we can tax them and and they'll know our ways enough. Spanish gave land grants to people who were mestizo. That was the idea that my grandma put that identity down on, you know, the birth certificate. So these are the things we have in this, uh, in our to unpack. You know, we've seen DACA, we've seen LBTQ, we've seen gay marriage become legal. We've seen, you know, all of these different things going on in, in the in American community, the tearing down of statues. We've, we've seen so much information in our lifetime. And for me, right, these are great things that are happening. You know, we're finally coming to a place where we're recognizing these group groups of marginalized people. There still is work to be done, of course. And, right, there's an opportunity here to acknowledge a large group of people in the United States that have never been acknowledged. And these are the indigenous people of North America from Spanish-speaking ancestry, like me. You know, we come from Spanish-speaking Native Americans that were colonized by Spain before they were colonized by the United States, before they were colonized by Texas, before they were colonized by Mexico. And we have never changed. The countries have. <laughs> right, right. The occupation, the <laughs> the occupation has changed. changed. Yeah, yeah, but we have never changed. And that's the thing that I feel is is challenging, you know, for many people to understand. It's like... When we look at people that speak these other colonial languages, uh, we have this tendency of saying that, oh, well, this is, you know, this land is our land and it's not yours. And we'll build a wall here and we'll like literally try to stop the natural flow of life. The natural flow of life is if people are hungry, they're going to go to where the food is. You know, if they're if they feel threatened, they're going to go to where there's not war. They're going to go to where there is not people hurting them and their children. What would you do for your kid? You know, yeah. what would I do yeah. for my child? No, I love I love that idea that people really seem to miss that the natural flow of life. That's all we're seeing. Immigration laws are really they're complicated. They're very complicated. I wouldn't want to be the one to try to have to figure it out. Um, open borders um, should be possible, I think, because I've always, you know, the border's imaginary anyway. The border is an imaginary line that came about through war. It's not a real line. It's just like the borders the borders of Oklahoma and Texas. That I just learned that that little piece of Oklahoma at the very top from Texas is the part that they wanted to keep slavery in. So that's why there's this little line at the very top of Texas that's Oklahoma, because Oklahoma wanted to keep slavery and Texas was not going to do it. So that little area had slaves they wanted to keep. You know, it, it's just these lines are, yeah, they're absolutely nuts. Um, it's, it's like trying to stop people from going from st different states to different states. Um, it makes sense if there's... Um, a national emergency where a virus is killing people, but it doesn't, which we're not there yet. I mean, is, <laughs> what's, what's happened um, in the last year from so many experts is known as a very dire warning, but not the real thing. Like this is, this has been bad, but it could be worse. So those kind of things, you know, these kind of national emergencies, it makes sense, but to close down the border because 
you think uh, basically it's about a race of people. That's all it's about, right? It's it's about a race of people uh, that you, for some reason, don't want in your country until you realize they need to pick more lettuce. Uh, because and there's you know quickly, if you look at it, they quickly made exception. The farmers could hire or, them. Yeah, or build railroads. Or build or, a rail- Well, yeah, yeah, you go back a little ways, right? Build a railroad. If if you're going to do something that is going to put money in the pockets of the land barons, as it were, because the land barons were the only people that could vote in this country for something like a hundred years, um, you know, from 1770s until the late 1800s, uh, we wouldn't have been able to vote. You did have to own land for a long time. Then you had to be a white male. That if you, you don't have to own land, but you have to be a white male, right? And then, I mean, I think Honestly, I think I don't have my facts perfect, but I think the Native Americans were last to get the right to vote. Oh yeah, that's well known. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that's, that's what I thought. They were the last. Yeah. They were they were the most you know the most abused and and tortured people in the country, but they were the last to be able to have a say in in what happens here. Yeah, and you know, even to be looked at as human, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's been. Uh, really a challenging experience with the relationship that the United States government has and also the people of the United States. Where are people in this country that believe that Native Americans are a thing of the past? I have ran into people like this, or they believe that we're all supposed to be living in teepees and have breechcloth and feathers in our hair. You know, this idea of like what a contemporary, what the contemporary experience of being Native American is, is extremely diverse. One person's experience of being Native American can be completely different than another person's. And the way that the United States government has relationship with Native Americans, the federally recognized tribes in mm-hmm. this country, they have created this idea of blood quantum. And what this does is this creates conversations around full blood. And really, you know, how does this come into like our language that we can talk about people, humans, right? These are humans. These are children as the same way that you would talk about cattle or dogs. You know, that this is a pure breed human being. Right. This is an illusion. This is a confusion. This is basically the extension of eugenics and white supremacy. Right. You know, this is the exact ordinances yep. that have been created as the assumption of purity of race. But they were forced upon a group of indigenous people to come up with an idea of a concept of tribe and community on paper that really inevitably is set up to eliminate natives because eventually with this, with just the process of of people falling in love and having relatives that are you know not native you're going to have the uh, basically the loss of the bloodline and this has happened all over in native american communities and i feel that we've never really as a, a community ourselves unpacked that conversation we really haven't looked at it as, hey, these were tactics that were set up in the very foundation of white supremacy. So whenever I hear a person that talks about their full-blooded blah, 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 
you know, I just, I, I need to bring that forward to them. I need to ask them, how did this become a part of your conversation? And then, right, for other indigenous people around the world, your conversation of being indigenous, that's between, like I said before, you and Mother Earth. Those are the only two that know if you're indigenous. Because for me, right, being indigenous is a relationship with the planet. That's the most important premise that we can have. And that is something personal to you. And it's also the value that you see in the world around you, your value system. And getting back to that relational value is so important and so relevant today. It's such a huge conversation to have. And I'm grateful, Joel, to be here to talk about it because it means something to me to be recognized in your show, you know, to be seen here. And this is like that one step in the direction of hopefully one day we're driving down the interstate and we come into Portland and it doesn't just say welcome to Portland, but it says welcome to Portland, the ancestral land of the Multnomah and the Willamette and the Clackamas. You know, what would that be like to live in a world that that was a part of the reality? What would it be like if every PTA meeting and every single uh, school around the United States began with an acknowledgement of the ancestral lands that those schools were built on? I mean, everywhere you go, it's not that that reservation is Native American land. There, there's an ancestral connection to every part of this country. You know, where your home is at, there may be, there may have been an umbilical cord buried on that land. You know, this is a reality of the world we live in. And we're the ones that are conscious of that. I remember being in sweat on White Mountain in, you know, in the Apache Nation and White Mountain Apache up here in, in Arizona and sitting there in sweat lodge and, and the, you know, the guys who were there, the men that were there, they were introducing themselves traditionally. And this one uh, man, he looked over at me and he said, yeah, I can tell you where my umbilical cord is buried. I can take you, you know, uh, right up the street from here and I can show you the tree where it's buried at. Because you know why? Because his father took him there. His mother took him there. Mm -hmm. And they said, son, from the very moment you were born, we took care of you. We buried your umbilical cord here. You know, this, these are the ways of thinking that are uh, give us the foundation and the fortification of self-identity, emotional intelligence, and relational spirituality. How beautiful it would be if families today took that kind of responsibility to their children. I mean, we talk about being environmentalists and trying to do what we can, recycling and you know, trying to buy fuel efficient cars and, you know, the things that we do as conscious people, but yet are we really living in relationship with the planet? Have we given ourselves that permission slip to not just, you know, do the behaviors, but actually allow for the planet to be a part of our consciousness, to be a part of us on a spiritual level. And these are the, the things that indigenous communities have known since the dawn of cultural identity. They've understood that people are the epitome of the planet. And that relationship is symbiotic. We're in a symbi We're not the virus. We're not the problem of the devastation. It's our values that are the problem. You know, we originally were the people that cultivated the forest and kept the fires out. You know, we were the ones that burnt the earth underneath the, the large trees so that the, the forest could thrive. But now we've gotten so far away from that. We don't even understand how to be in relationship again. But thankfully, there's communities that have held on to these principles. And the beautiful thing is, is that if there's a remnant inside of all of us, because these concepts are woven into the fabric of our DNA. These are things that when we remind ourselves of the sun against our skin, 
of the water against our face, we can activate those principles of empathy because really, you know, having empathy for the planet and having empathy for your brothers and sisters are the same. You know, these are, this is neuroplasticity right here that takes so many years to dumb down. I mean, they, basically the system has to beat that out of you, you know, or numb it out of you or, you know, cocaine it out of you or alcohol it out of you. I mean, how many people that are living in the professional world right now are going to sleep every night, you know, drinking a half a bottle of, of your favorite, you know, expensive whatever, you know, and going through the day uh, on some kind of anxiety, antidepressant, pharmaceutical medicine. Right, gotten- right. And apparently a lot more in the last nine, 10 months. Uh, quite a few more people are doing that. And, and it's... um. Yeah, I love the concepts you're talking about as being in touch with the Earth Mother. And uh, there's so many ways. Just walking out the door and letting your the sun hit your face is part of that. You know, the I got a tree in my backyard that I can go literally hug. Yeah, they are tree huggers in Oregon, ladies and gentlemen. And you can... I love it. It's a real thing. Trees are have an amazing, amazing energy if you hug them. I've hugged trees that um, some of the oldest trees in the world are right down the road from us in the redwoods. And when you can... If you go into a grove of redwoods, you can hear them, t- you know, off... It's not very far off the highway. You walk into a grove of redwoods, you can hear them talking to each other. And it's it's an incredible experience. You can also take your shoes off and walk in your in your backyard for a minute, and you will feel a you will feel the earth. You can feel it, um, you know, the energy of the earth coursing around and going up through your body. So that is such an important thing. And I mean, I don't know if it's important. It's, it's cocaine and and uh, alcohol, but you know, it's an important. <laughs> <laughs> it's a. Uh, Right. And, you know, using this practice of the sacred seven that I wrote in my book, the the concept of introducing yourself to the mountain, Mm -hmm. introducing yourself, Mm -hmm. your ancestors to the river. You know, this is so empowering. And people have wrote me emails and they have sent me letters and cards. And they said, Andrew, the first time I introduced myself with the principles of your book, I felt the earth shake. You know, I seen a deer come out of nowhere. This woman was in California on the coast and there was an earthquake right after she introduced herself. You know, another man talked about the elk, the deer, you know, all these different representations of the planet saying, oh, welcome back home. You know, welcome back, earthling. You know, we've missed you. And that's something to get excited about and to actually strive towards uh, helping ourselves awaken that process. I myself, I've been on the path of being involved in working in hospitals and all of these different types of uh, environments, bringing the drum and bringing this message of self-identity into these places, drug rehabs. And, you know, there is a part of me that feels like, you know, there's this warrior kind of spirit in me that wants to be out and be the activist and being screaming at people and being angry and all of these things. And I feel that ultimately, right, it comes back to this place of how can we, you know, help a person that just doesn't know what it's really like to feel the sun? They really don't know what it's like to hug a tree. You know, when we look at the redwoods and we see the beauty that we see, that is because we have given ourselves that permission slip. And when we think back to the person that looked at those redwoods and all they felt was dollar signs. Hey, what can I build? 
Man. Right? No. I, yeah. I look at that today. There's something like 2 or 3% left. And it, it just it boggles my mind. And that started in the East Coast. We were lucky because in the West Coast, they were, they didn't, they were nearly done um, taking all the lumber in the world. But 3% of these trees are left alive, and they're a 1,000-year-old at least. Um, that's what we know about them. Uh, some of them, of course, are a few years old. But a 1,000-year-old trees that they nearly took all of to build cabins and um, furniture for your backyard and, you know, all, all kinds of, uh, I mean, what they, a lot of what they built was beautiful, but it's gone now. The trees well, still you know, remain. Well, a lot of San Francisco was built and a lot of that burnt up. Right, so right. That's the thing is that one of the most devastating fires in history, you know, was in San Francisco. And mm -hmm. what we failed to do is we failed to see the relationship. You know, for some reason, we think that, you know, that that just happened. You know, it's like... <laughs> It's not, it's not coincidental. There is a, a, a repercussion for every, every action, you know, has a reaction. You know, this is the way of life. And in, in the indigenous teachings, it's like, hey, put something back where you took, you know, put some tobacco down for what you took, you right. know, put your hair right. down for what you took, mm -hmm. you know, make an offering for, for whatever it is that you took from the land because you are land. And if you take 10, you're going to become imbalanced. And do you want that imbalance to follow your children? Do you want it to follow the next seven generations? Because you are that representation of the next seven generations. And this becomes like this, you know, challenging kind of conversation in our contemporary world because there's so many levels of distortion. But yet in our practice, right, being conscious of that and doing what we can and also loving ourselves. You know, what is loving yourself? You know, it's giving yourself the permission to say, I'm doing my best. And at times we can go, you know, literally, I mean, yeah, you can go bonkers trying to do what you can for each other and, and for the planet and, and forget about who you are. So there's a balance in that. But knowing that you have the mindfulness and the value system to look at the tree and to see innate value, to look at the mountain and see innate value, to look at people regardless of their finances or their education and see value. You know, this is a good starting point. This is a place where you can begin to, you know, really challenge the behaviors inside of yourself. So, you know, it's been a road to get me to the place that I'm at right mm -hmm. now. And, you know, I'd like to share a little bit about how I got here because I feel that I really didn't give that justice uh, at the beginning. And when I mean justice, I mean like actually unpacking some of uh, the trauma that my family experienced during the Reagan administration and even into the Clinton administration. So my parents died of drug-related causes and my mom from a cocaine overdose and my father from cirrhosis of the liver caused by hepatitis C. So as a little boy, I was out shoplifting with my mom to support her cocaine habit. You know, wow. and then by the time I was a teenager, I was in the spoon, which means I was using heroin with my father. And in that life, right, I was left at the park while my mom went and copped dope when she went and bought drugs, mm -hmm. left at drug houses, you know, dealt with sexual abuse, watched my mom get ble uh, beat up by the police in front of me, have a relationship to childhood post-traumatic stress that has been a part of my adult life as well. And that era that I lived through was an era that we can look back at now and we can say, hey, there's opportunity to correct our behavior today. And one of the programs that the United States government was doing was a program called DARE. 
And this was drug abuse, resistance, and education. And we, we say now, like, what the heck was going on in this? Like, why would, did this happen? This was armed police officers going into schools and telling children, you know, to stay off drugs. And also, when I was a kid, they were going in and interrogating children and getting them to turn in their brothers and sisters and their moms and dads for smoking marijuana. So when they came into my neighborhood in Southeast Portland, which those of you that are old enough to remember Southeast Portland, it looked like a bunch of VW buses and Harley Davidson's broke down and they made a tree house when was, I was a kid. It was not like it is today. It, no, not, not at all. Not, not at all. I mean, my no. grandparents, you know, came from New Mexico and I think they paid $10,000 for their house. You know, that's probably, I mean, the homes there are complete, like crazy million dollar homes in Southeast Portland. Right. You know, uh, it's just- Insane. It's insane, right? This was the right after the Vietnam War, and there was uh, Vietnam veterans all on Hawthorne burning stuff to stay warm, literally. All those, you know, hipster shops and pubs and everything, none of that was there. You know, all there was was the Freddies. <laughs> the, that's right. <laughs> right? That was there. the Freddies. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, oh, gosh, I can't. Gosh, what is his name? The, uh, the, the furniture guy. Oh, man, I wish I could remember that. Boy, I, I'm going to really, I've lost my Portland, you know, not knowing his name. But I can tell you, uh, Rod, Rod, oh, man. Rod the River was that the Saturday morning? Anyway, yeah, there was the Fred. Oh, Meyer. the Saturday morning guy that that walked up with his boat. Um, yeah, Ramb Ramblin Rod. Ramblin, Ramblin Rod, Rod with the yes. tugboat. Yeah, Ramblin Rod. Okay, so you got Ramblin Rod, but what was the what was the furniture guy? Do I you can't remember because I was down here in Eugene, where eggs are cheaper in the country, and so are cars and trucks. But, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's all I remember, and the ad is still on. And I'm since I was a kid. <laughs> That's hilarious, man. <laughs> that is hilarious. So I'm sitting in, you know, Sunnyside Elementary School and I'm just sweating bullets because my mom tells me if the police ask you if we're smoking pot and you tell them we are, you know, you're going to break up our family. Mm -hmm. and, you know, this Scary is stuff. Yeah, this is. A, kid. Oh, yeah, exactly. This is a part of our culture. You know, like I mm -hmm. literally like some of the earliest memories I remember were cleaning the seeds and the stems back in, you know, when. Seeds and stems were in marijuana. When there was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> None of that now. None of that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that was my job as a kid to clean the pot. And, uh, you know, in fact, one of my family, uh, you know, photo albums, there's a big pot leaf right in the family photo album next to my baby pictures. And that was just a part of the way that we lived. And, you know, when they came in and, you know, my heart's beating, my heart's pounding and, Fortunately, I wasn't interrogated, but they said something to me. You know, the listeners are probably wondering, why is this guy so about self-identity? Well, the D.A.R.E. cops told me as a kid, if you have one drug addict parent, you're 50% more likely to become a drug addict. And that was like that moment in my life where I felt like for the first time, somebody had told me that I was genetically flawed. And I didn't really even know what it meant, but I felt it, uh -huh. you know? Felt uh -huh. like this idea of this responsibility to this identity that subsequently led me down that path of behaviors. And, you know, years later, I was sitting in the same prison that I had visited my dead father at. Wow. And I was contemplating, you know, spirituality and, and asking myself the questions of, you know, how did I get here? Why? You know, blaming my mom, blaming my dad. You know, my dad, he dealt with 
heroin addiction pretty much his entire life. I mean, I think he told me he was like 14 when he first started getting high. Had a gang name, you know, in our little Vadio neighborhood in, in Phoenix. Because I, I grew up brown in a white neighborhood in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And then white in a brown neighborhood in, you know, in, in Peoria. Phoenix. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was like totally different. You know, like for me, right, like the idea of a person saying, well, skin color doesn't matter to me. That just seems so beautiful, but yet such a fantasy. Oh, you know, gosh, I, I know. Because I try and think that way. I try and look at things that way. Well, well you know. I really don't want to be influenced by skin color. Um, one thing I think people forget, and we're not there yet, and that's not real. That's not real. And I've been reminded of this more. For some reason, in the last four years, there's been a lot more reminders of this. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what it was. <laughs> and then, uh, that's a good one. <laughs> oh, man. But then we do have to remember that it's been, um, actually, some Native Americans say a million years, but it's been at least uh, hundreds of thousands of years that we have thought this way. This isn't a new thought. This didn't come around in 1890 that, you know, these people were different. And that This was a, as soon as tribes got to be like over a couple hundred people, we started thinking, well, that tribe isn't the same as us. Even though they probably looked exactly the same, they might have wore a different fur fashion or something. And they were no, so it's a, it's a hard thing. I think it's a really difficult thing to teach out of ourselves. To overcome and realize that yes, it's a, it's all part. We're all part of the same thing, and, and you know we're all part of the earth. It's it's hard to get get that. It's hard. I think it's much easier to just to, to to acknowledge the fact that you know we are different. Like yeah, different. well that's true. Yeah, and it's okay. You know, it's it's, it's okay, okay to be different. You know, and it's yeah. also like your preconceived uh, uh, confirmation bias or your bias that's inside of you. Embrace it. You know, the more that you resist that part of yourself, the more that you succumb to it. And for me, right, I've known that I have racial tendencies in my life. You know, if there's a group of of white guys over here and a group of brown guys over here, I'm going to naturally go over to the group of brown guys. I'm going to start talking to them. Yeah, me too. That's just the way it is. You know, like <laughs> I, if, I'm the same. And I'm a white if there's guy. one, if there's one African guy in a whole like place, I'm going to go over and start talking to him about music. I'm going to start like these are just principles. You know, it's mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they're they're bias, they're tendencies inside right. of us of comfort, right. and it's okay to embrace that. In fact, the more you embrace it, the more that you can learn. Hey, guess what? It might be okay for you to go sit at the Christian businessman's breakfast and feel what it's like to be around a bunch of you know, evangelicals and to listen to their language and listen to what they're talking about. And maybe, you know, you can navigate your own confirmation bias. Maybe it would be nice for you to go sit around a bunch of good old boys, you know, waving their Dixie flags. Who knows? You know, I want to be able to be fluid enough to listen to everybody's conversation and to feel like, okay, it's okay. You know, it's okay to be in this space because we're going to learn from each other and we're going to help mend the hoop. You know, Robert White Mountain, this Lakota man, he said, the real issue with humanity is that we have forgot the hoop. You know, we forgot the circle. And getting back to the circle is getting back to the idea that, guess what? You can show up however. You know, you can show up however. And if you sit down and you start sharing and you just listen, you know, in this circle of life, you're going to have a transformation. You know, you're going to change. And yet we forgot how to do that. We've 
forgotten. We've got so far away from like this idea of, hey, let's just let's just get down to being a child again. Let's just get down to being, you know, a grandchild again. And once we get there, right, once we let go of the distortion of the masculine and even, you know, the over-sympathetic distortion of the feminine, we get to the equality of the feminine, masculine, and the child. This is really the Holy Trinity in my understanding. Mm-hmm. Mother Earth, Father Sky, Sacred Child. When I get to that place and I show up in the totality of my experience, then other people want to show up in that way. And then next thing you know, we're sitting around playing in five. You know, we're playing in seven. We're playing in nine. You know, we're playing in three together. And we're really exploring the world of, you know, and for those, you know, people out there that aren't drummers, you know, (laughs) I'm talking about playing in different meters, you know. In other words, what I'm saying is we're exploring the fun things of life together. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's something beautiful to dream. That's something beautiful to give inspiration to and to hold that sacred space of activation. Yeah, and maybe from there, right, we can start dreaming even bigger dreams. If we can get along with each other, maybe we might start thinking about what would it be like if we had gardens on the outside of the bank buildings? What would it be like if we started growing vertical food? You know, could we take the San Joaquin Valley and turn it back into the wildlands? What would it be like if we, you know, started thinking about the way that we look at food? You know, and all the food we throw because it's blemished. You know, what would life be like if we could start, you know, distributing food to the hungry, distributing, you know, food to those that are suffering? It's not that we don't have enough. It's that we have a distribution issue here. You know, that's the one thing. Absolutely. We have a distribution issue and we have a language issue where we label things. You know, we put labels on things so that you can't do those kind of things. You know, a, a big part of not giving food to the hungry is how that's being labeled these days. And it, it, yeah, it's absolutely nuts. It seems, you know, I love the idea of being able to talk to different people. I'm not always the best at it, but it, um, kids are, you know, little kids don't know the difference that, that, you know, finding the child in you is such a great concept because little kids will talk to little kids no matter who they are. And the smaller you get in America, it seems like the smaller the town you get to, the more people are just going to talk. They're, they're not too concerned with, you know, who you are, where you came from. They're probably going to talk to you. They're probably going to treat you like like they treat everyone else. Uh, that's most of America. Uh, it, it Really, a lot, of, a lot of things, a lot of the supposed division in this country, I think, is a bit overblown. Some of it's not overblown, unfortunately, but some of it is. Some of it, and some of it is not... The reality, like people can still talk to each other, but yeah, the the well, the social media has given concepts. us like like so many opportunities to divide ourselves. I mean, we live in like right. a cancel culture, right? And for me, the idea of integration and the idea of connection is like that energetic exchange, and a lot of it is the tone of the voice. You know, a lot of it is the posturing, communication on social media through typing on a keyboard is probably one of the most challenging forms of communication to navigate. So you put that like level of communication inside of a political arena, and then you have major divide. And that major divide leads to isolation and tribalism. And these tribes that have been created out of distortions of reality primarily, you know, and fear, right? You put a person and you start talking about, you know, MS-13 and all these gangs and all this stuff and all this, you know, horrible. I mean, it's like the super predator conversation of the Reagan and Clinton era. 
You know, these are the same fear tactics that have been used over and over and over again to scare people from, you know, each other. When really, what would it be like if you went and knocked on the door of the neighbor that has the kid that's struggling in the gang and you said, hey, you know what? Our, our neighborhood here is noticing that you, you might have some substance abuse issues. You know, we want to we wanna be here for you. We want to love you. You know, we want to try to do what we can to help. You know, what would that world be like instead of, hey, I think that those, you know, those people and I'm making a sign of a phone for everybody. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. Most people so are like, listening. You're right. You know, we're sitting over in the corner and we're whispering, you know, to call the police on somebody because we think that they're doing whatever, you know, rather than having a conversation. What happens when the police come? The police come and they're armed and they really don't have the training to deal with people that are struggling with a lot of the issues that communities have dealt with. Mm-hmm. You know, communities are yeah. the ones that have helped people. Communities are the ones that restore people. And to put that on police is like, that's the worst thing that you could ever do. And that's why we're seeing the struggles that we're seeing in our communities is because they're just not trained to deal with a person that has mental health issues or to deal with a person that has, you know, substance abuse issues. They, you know, they're there to enforce laws. That's it. And right. Well, we, we get, yeah, yeah, we've been really lucky in, in in the city that I live in. We actually have a program that's being recognized nationally for its value because we do send out the these group of people that are basically counselors on a lot of calls, uh, and they're trying. Are to you nav- still in Eugene? Yeah, I'm still in Eugene. Oh, I seen that. Yeah. I seen that yeah, program actually on a national uh, forum. I think it was a. Uh, it might have been a podcast or an NPR show. And they're mm-hmm. like, use this model that's been going, and it's been going on for like 30 years or something? It, yeah, it started as uh, this thing called Whitebird Clinic. It's an alcoholism clinic, and now it's a drug and alcoholism clinic, and they have a program called Cahoots, and they basically go around in little white vans with the with the white jackets, and they, no, they don't have white jackets, I'm kidding. But they, <laughs> they go around and they will um, go to people that are struggling, that are obviously having a problem, and try to help them. And they are now, and for some number of years, they've been taking some police calls when they, they'll either go in addition to police or instead of um, when they know it's, a, well, pretty sure it's a mental issue. Now, we also, we have the opposite problem as well, that we've had a lot of police trained at the police academy in Los Angeles. The police academy in Los Angeles is the worst possible place to train a small police force in a town like Eugene. It's like 170,000 people. You're training people to deal with millions of a whole different situation. I mean, I don't think their tactics are right for any town. But so we have kind of both sides. Um, I have dealt with the police where they've been extremely good. They've chosen to give someone a ride to uh, talk to a neighbor, actually, and instead of arresting him, where they could have easily arrested the person um, in, you know, instead of doing that. But they they knew that wouldn't do any good. So... There's kind of both sides here, in, um, which is an interesting. We're we're really seeing this this little microcosm of you know here's the bad side and the good side <laughs> at the same time. Here's here's what it could be. And I I've always thought. I mean, for me, since I was a little kid, when I was little, the police in uh, England didn't have guns. They did not carry guns. They still carry them to a very limited degree compared to America. And I always thought, well, that's that's amazing. Because if you shot a police officer, every cop in in England was going to go after you. 
every police officer in England was then going to go after you if you shot a cop. So it was a whole, it was just a different world. I'm not saying that, I mean, I know that can't work here, but I always thought, well, that's a pretty different way to approach a door. You know, now when the police approach a door, everywhere from Eugene to cities, any city bigger, and and some cities, they show up and basically they're in a pseudo-military gear, you know, full vest. They've got several clips on their belt, which is something I noticed. They don't just have a gun. And, and when I grew up, they had a six-shooter, right? They literally had, it was like Barney Fife. And <laughs> they had a nice, neat uniform and a hat. Now they show up, it's a, a vest. It's, uh, you know, several clips. Um, it, it's just, a, it's a weird way to approach somebody, to have them come to your door with that much, you know, it's it's like we're in a different uh it's like we're in a war zone sometimes. And there's nothing in between that. You know, right. There, right. there's no like in between the law enforcement person with the fully automatic weapon and right the the person, the actual human being, right? There should be some kind of middle ground there, I feel. And I think that Eugene is trying to to show the world that that's possible. I remember listening to the program and they talked about the amount of money that they've saved and the person that was on there. And I, you know, I'm not going to quote them perfectly, but she was saying that she had been on calls where it normally would have gone to the police. And they asked her, well, how many times did you have to call the police because you felt threatened? And she had worked there for several years and she said, never that she never had to call the police because she felt afraid for her life. And that just goes to show us that, hey, you know, a little community goes a long way. Yeah, uh, We start yeah. to mend the hoop. We start to, you know, help people that are struggling. People, you know, we've done a great, you know, justice with uh, the Affordable Care Act, in my opinion, because it not only did it, is it practicing lowering health care, but it also looked at the evaluation of the hospital system. Now, the hospital system prior to the Affordable Care Act was not penalized if a person came back to the hospital over and over again, which put a strain on the hospital itself. So now, right, they have done the metric and they've looked at, you know, hey, what happens if we keep the person at home, if we give them telemedicine, if we call them, if we, you know, some of our elders are going to the hospital because that's the only person they have touching them. You know, that's the only person that they have physical contact with? What if we come in and knock on the door and send a person that maybe is trained in, you know, peer support, right? To go talk to this elderly person, or we start to integrate wellness programs in low-income HUD housing communities. And that starts to take the stress off of the hospital. And it starts to lower the price of hospitalization for everybody because cost and demand, you know, this is basic principle of capitalism. But yet we haven't done this with our jails. You know, our jails are still getting paid for the amount of people that come, not the amount of people that they keep out. Oh, here's what's great, though. This, this new guy, this, this new guy from the blue side, is, uh, he's already started to dismantle that. I love it. Where's he's, this happening? In the, in the U.S. I mean, he, he's, he's starting to pull money from private prisons and um, basically he wants to end the private prison system, which would take years, but he's already started the process of saying, we're not going to build any more private prisons and we're going we're gonna to start taking federal money away from that. I always thought that was a terrible program. 
I have a brother-in-law who worked in a jail in Bellingham for 30 years. And, you know, he could see that private prisons are, are a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. If, you've got a pri if you have a prison based on profit, then what are they going to want? Well, and, you know, it goes into the state level as well. Mm -hmm. Because in yes. the states, the states are funded by the feds when it comes to the prison system. They're the ones that gives them the tanks and the guns and the armor and all that. The, the, the federal system allocates that funding. So right. it's the same thing on the state level as it is on the privatized prison. You know, as far as the funding sources, the only difference is, is now you're not answering to the public. You're answering to a board. And I was at Corporate Corrections of America. And mm -hmm. I can tell you that from being an inmate in that place... And also being a guard in that place, you know, the guards, it's like one guard to 500 inmates or something crazy like that. I mean, right, it's like right. the level, the amount of people that they pack into the, those places per guard is extremely dangerous for them. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, I'm talking oh, yeah. really dangerous. I mean, they're way outnumbered, way more outnumbered than any state system. And the food is like you, we would get chicken and it would have feathers on it, you know, stuff like that. That's just like, uh, it just gross. Uh, I was, it was probably 90% illegal uh, entry in there. And then 5% big drug. And then 3% Native American. And 2% like mail fraud and stuff like that. Because mm -hmm. it was federal. But, you know, the immigration stuff, it was, I was in there with this guy that was actually my celly. And he... You know, this was, uh, gosh, this was back, you know, in the day, 9-11, so it was Bush era. And uh, he, he told me, he said that the only time that he was ever in Mexico was when his parents went there to birth him. His mom went to Mexico to have him. And you know why she went to Mexico to have him? Because of the Vietnam War. Oh, because she, oh thought, she, didn't, she thought it would go on and on and he would have to go. Wow. She thought he could be drafted. <gasps> oh, no. So yeah. years later, he gets pulled over for a DUI and, you know, he's just like a lot of low income people, you know, oh, that's something I can, it's going to cost me money. I'll take care of it next month. I'll take care of it next month, you know, and then before you know it, you know, it's like, okay, do I eat or do I take care of my immigration? You know, do I pay my bills or do I take care of my immigration? Now he's got a family of his own and he's just struggling to, you know, get his kids clothes and keep them in school, gets pulled over on a DUI. And that leads to him being sent to Mexico, right? He goes to Mexico and he's like, I don't have anything here. I don't even really speak Spanish. Like he barely even spoke Spanish. So he tries to cross. When he crosses, he gets a legal entry. So now he gets hit with another crime. And literally he had no um, release date the last I seen him. Oh, because, no. you know, yeah, back then they weren't giving um, illegal entry a release date. I don't know that, if they've changed that program, but... That's so bizarre, because, I mean, not only is that a terrible story, um, but it also sounds very much like a Cheech and Chong movie from a... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if there was some some movie where, where, where they got sent back to that. Mexico... I remember that. And yeah. from, they, weren't, they yeah. just didn't have their ID on them, that's it. I want your pants. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you take off your pants? <laughs> Oh, that's funny. You do remember it. <laughs> of course. Come on. <laughs> yeah, how can you forget that? 
you know, oh who wins in an open God. road batter, battle, Airwolf or, or, you know, Kit, you know? What I mean? like, <laughs> That's right. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, this is the generation right there, so I got it. <laughs> oh. Airwolf. You didn't think I was going to pull that one out, did no, you? No, no, that's a... <laughs> Oh, another life destroyed by drugs. Uh, yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, Jan, Jan Michael Vincent. Yeah. Yeah, really? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's why I you didn't, didn't see him in much after that. Wow. You know, you know, real hard time. Uh, according to what I've read now, I don't know the guy, so I shouldn't say. Because, you know, who knows? But that that's thats all the stories I've heard. From, and that, that's what people say. Great show, and, though. Yeah. Great show. Yeah. He's, well, I'm a helicopter buff, so I... <laughs> It's like the only helicopter show in ever. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's pretty I, I remember the, you know, the 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 advertisements for the 360, you know, he was going to do the 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 360 in in the helicopter never been achieved before but Airwolf could do it, you know. Uh-huh. On Thursday, 7 p.m. Join <laughs> us as Airwolf. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. You can probably see him on YouTube now. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I, it, yeah. It would have to be a pretty boring night to go there, it, though. But. Yeah, <laughs> you know it. It wouldn't quite hold up. I know. Probably wouldn't quite hold up. Oh my god. Oh man. Well, Andrew, this has been an amazing conversation. I think I should. Uh, I think I should let you go now. We've actually been talking for a little bit, a few yeah, minutes. Yeah, you know. I, uh, I, I don't even know what time I'm supposed to be done or anything. No. But okay, good. Good. Those are the best. I mean, these are the this is the podcasts that I like where people get lost in conversation, and I'm uh, able to just sit back and let them talk. And you, you've been amazing. I really, really appreciate you coming on because um, you are full of really good information um, and things that people I don't think understand or hear about very much at all and i think it needs to be out there more uh you know i hope that i can grow my podcast so people can hear these kind of stories because this is this was this was an important story and important information um and i love that we were able to go through a lot of things and i barely asked you a question that's always my favorite thing so well, you know, Joel, it's like I, if nobody hears it, I had fun. So I, you know, I can't wait to get up there in Oregon, and maybe we'll we'll get to jam together a little bit. You know, you oh, that have, would be nice. Yeah, that would I be know nice. most of you kid drummers aren't aren't drum circle people. You know, oh, the drum circle, ah, you know, but maybe we can jam a little bit. You and know? I do have a baron. Oh, a okay. Bar, you know, the Irish drum. A friend sure. of mine brought one back for me from Ireland, so I I can actually sit and play that. Did you say you were English? How is that? How does that feel to play an Irish drum being English? Well, I'm part. I have some uh, Irish in me too. It's, it's oh, interesting. Okay, okay. That's an interesting thing because I was going to mention that earlier. My aunt did our ancestry, um, which you know a lot of people like myself don't know their ancestry at all. My aunt did it before ancestry.com. She did it herself through her own research, and she made us each you know a binder. Um, like two, three inches thick that goes all the way back to the 1400s. Wow. And so I actually do know where my ancestry goes. I thought we were German. My last name's Albrecht. I thought we were German. We were German for one generation. And those Germans came from mostly from Russia 
and then they also and then those families came from all over you know uh, England Ireland I think I'm like a 16th Irish is what I figured out um, it goes all the way back to like dukes in uh, in old countries in the 1400s and then so is this the matriarchal or the patriarchal side or is it both of them patriarchal yeah okay my, I'm, I know much less about the matriarchal side um, that is pretty much English as well but I don't have the full ancestry for that one so I don't know yeah, I don't know nearly as much about that. But it's interesting because my grandmother came from Germany, grandmother and grandfather. Um, they both came to escape, I think, the First World War. You know, they came before the First World War, basically to escape that. Um, but they were all... See, I, and what's, you know. what's really strange is if you look at Germany, right, prior to World War One, which your grandparents were living in Germany prior to World War One, so this was a mm -hmm. whole different world. Yes, you know these were small little enclaves of of groups that were very tightly knit that had their own language. I recently met a woman that was from she was Estonian, I think that that was her name. Her the ethnic group that she came from, which was a small Jewish group that lived in Poland. Oh and wow! And she's the only person like if you look it up in prior to World War One, there was this group of people there. Estonia? Estonia? It's Estonia. Like I actually, strangely enough, knew some musicians from Estonia uh, in a band house I lived in. They came and recorded there. So, yeah, it's Estonia. <laughs> so, yeah, so she she had this, you know, remnant understanding of her identity through her matriarchal side. Her grandmother came here with her mother uh, and didn't know any English, didn't know in her grandmother's husband her grandfather died this woman's mm -hmm. 90 years old wow. and was in one of my sacred seven classes that i did for a retirement community and how rad is that you know to be able to sit with a person who is a part of a jewish european community that had its own region at one point and is now no longer on the map that is super cool you know yeah I it is somebody yeah like that knew that and i was like please tell me that you're you told your grandparent your grandchildren that they're from this group. And she was like, oh, yeah, they know. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. really awesome. Yeah, mm -hmm. I just had a guest on my show who did, who um, discovered a Jewish community in Russia in, uh, it was, it's called uh, Soviet Zion. He made, a, he made a musical about it because it was such an amazing discovery to him. Um, and there's, it's one of the oldest Jewish communities um, that still exists. And it was, bef you know, before people came to America and stuff. So it's very interesting. That kind of stuff is, the history is just, it's, it's incredible. It's really It really something. is. I, yeah. I, lo I love to hear things about, you know, what was going on in the world and how these lines, they seem so, um, you know, they seem so like, yeah, permanent, you know? Like we think about what the United States is and, and what, you know, like our ideas are so solid. They're so concrete, but that's just our perception of it. I mean, these were literally regions that in a woman's lifetime, you know, have now dissolved. They're no longer here anymore. Uh, and there's a lot of Eastern Europe that's like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, all you know, the majority of the countries in Africa uh, you know, a lot of Asia as well. Like these are relatively new lines that have been drawn on a map someplace to create a region, an identity uh, that did not exist, you know, not too long ago. 
you know, which is really, yeah, it's really kind of mind, you know, opening to, yeah. Africa is bizarre because it's constantly changing because they're constantly having wars and yeah, it's really something. Well, it really hasn't, you know, those lines that uh, normally kept ethnic groups away from each other were created with two ethnic groups combined. I mean, it's not just Africa is going on in the Middle East as well with the, uh, oh, what's the, the uh, Pajmerka? Uh, am I saying that right? The Paj, Pajmerka, they're, the, they're like another Islamic group that's in uh, Iran, is it? Or is, is it, oh. Anyway, there's, you know, there's multiple different regions where these groups of people have tribal lineages that go back thousands of years to this specific region of the planet. And Mm -hmm. because a European or a colonial group comes in and says, okay, well, now you're all one country and you have to live in these borders. The sovereignty of that that group is now totally dissolved into another idea of self, you know, of regional identity and that's where the wars come from. You know, the idea of, of Africa, those natural lines that were drawn for thousands of years, you know, go back to who knows where. The colonial empires came in, the Dutch, the French, the English, whoever, divided up Africa. And now two groups that, you know, have not gotten along for, you know, who knows how long. Now they're living together. And uh, we look at it and we think to ourselves, wow, you know, this is crazy to think about uh these groups killing each other which it is it's horrible but yet what's the what's the reason for it you know that's more important right what can we learn about the way people get along and and how they you know are able to separate themselves and you know it's really challenging to think of the right answer in any of this right uh you know we're living in a world that you know is transforming itself everything everywhere we go i mean change is the only inevitability you know, it's the one thing that we can depend exactly. on. So, yeah, yeah, that's but, true. Yeah, change is the only only thing we know is going to happen, right? That's it's really bizarre, and it is. It's hard to know the answer. Um, probably not doing everything for profit and not killing people because they're in the wrong country is a a big start. That's, that's a big start. Having respect for everyone on the planet um, that would that would help. And you know, in the country we're in. We, I think sometimes we're in a unique position um, to do that more, to, you know, that we could, um, we're making strides that way and let's, let's keep going. Let's keep going that direction. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I should wrap this up. Uh, it's been so great having you on here. You've been listening to, were you still talking? This is Joel Albrecht, and my guest today, although I'm not going to do the full uh, definition, is Andrew Ecker. (laughs) (laughs) He has a wonderful book out about discovering yourself and discovering who you are. He's a native drummer. This will all be in the description. And uh, this has been really quite a lesson. I I hope we can do this again. Honestly, uh, I'm probably going to contact you and try and do this again because this was a really great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. And as I always say, be good to each other and also be good to yourself. Sweet, man. That was fun.